Welcome to another exciting episode of NIDS Knowledge, this one being Real Space Strategy Edition. This podcast is produced by the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, where we are advancing peace, promoting stability, and helping you to think deterrence. Each week, we will inform you about the latest in space strategy and its importance to our national defense. In all great power competitions throughout history, the Cold War being just one example, an arms race or military competition is the main area that the military instrument of national power was organized by law to address. While many have been hand-wringing over such things as security dilemmas over the past 30 years, the fact remains that while we would have all preferred in the era of the passive 1990 space environment to continue onward, there is an arms race going on for space deterrence and warfighting capabilities, and the U.S. is losing. China has the most rapidly growing space forces on planet Earth, with a multi-layered attack architecture consisting of ground-based anti-satellite missiles, electromagnetic jammers, high-powered microwaves, on-orbit anti-satellite missiles, and even fractional orbital bombardment systems capable of carrying conventional or nuclear weapons, including hypersonic glide vehicles, to any target on Earth. Russia is also developing and increasing their ASAT and FOBs capabilities, and has demonstrated, as did China, the will to use such weapons despite debris generation and international condemnation. Russia has employed electromagnetic and cyber-related counterspace weapon systems constantly in Ukraine as well. Yet rather than rapidly deploying U.S. space warfighting capabilities out of the research and development arena, we continue to message and posture for a force that lacks the weapons we need to address the threats to our critical space infrastructure or that have in, or we have insufficient numbers of the systems we have to be effective against a well-equipped adversary. For example, at present, the Space Force has around 16 or so electromagnetic warfare assets, primarily counter-communication systems, bounty hunter geolocation systems. These systems have been deployed consistently around the world in support of terrestrial combatant commanders in small numbers during the low-intensity operations in the Middle East and in Southwest Asia. However, even if all these units were deployed in the same time to the Indo-Pacific area of responsibility, it would not be able to address all spaceborne threats to space or terrestrial forces operating in the region. Despite this need within the openly acknowledged systems, the current budget request is highlighting a lack of urgency and addressing that gap in numbers to address potential Indo-Pacific requirements in a great power war with China, and is doing even less to handle worldwide requirements across all terrestrial combatant commanders. Some might think that such space combat activities are rare, but that is not the case. As then-Lieutenant General Thompson, former Vice Chief of Space Operations, has stated, the U.S. has been attacked in the low threshold, jamming, lazing, etc., every day. Numerous NRO directors have articulated publicly for years their orbital intelligence assets have been jammed and lazed by adversary nations. Yet despite these actions and the demonstration of kinetic ASAT systems by China and Russia, the U.S. continues to treat the Space Force as a support entity for the Joint Force and not as a military service in its own right. That is like having a Navy that just carries ground forces and supplies to land engagements without any way to actively defend itself or to clear blockaded sea lanes with offensive firepower. The Space Force needs to have kinetic and non-kinetic options to address all the threats to critical space infrastructure and our strategic interests in space. This needs to be the main priority of the Space Force, but while space support is an important part of the service's mission, the service's primary reason for being established was not to continue with the status quo or to be able to absorb attacks with resilient architectures. 
It was to address the threat and organize, train, and equip space warfighting forces. As Senator Wicker, ranking member of the Senate Armed Services Committee, has said recently, speaking broadly about our defenses in all domains, quote, our weaponry are not where they should be. And the big reason for this is the strategy for the Space Force is not what it should be. To discuss this and other related topics, we have with us as our guest, Dr. Michael Coyote-Smith, Professor of Strategic Space Studies at Air University's Air Command and Staff College and the founder of the Grissom Space Scholars Program. He is a retired Air Force Space Weapons Officer and Strategist and has a PhD in Strategic Studies from the University of Reading in the UK. Welcome, Coyote, to the program. Chris, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. It's a good chance for two old friends to get together and have another session. Thanks. Sounds awesome. So before we get into the meat of the current strategy of the Space Force that came out recently, I think it would be helpful for our listeners if you could give a quick explanation of what strategy is and what strategy is not, especially in the military context. Wow, you know, that's actually a very good question. I teach a course on comparative strategies, and uh, this is one of the opening first-class type of discussions that we have. Uh, There's several different definitions of strategy that you can find out there. In fact, if you Google it, as I did, I found the unrewarding result of over 1.4 million different definitions of strategy proffered by different authors throughout the the ages. Quite literally, um, I'm going to go to Everett Carl Dolman's definition of strategy. Dr. Dolman is a professor at Air War College here at Maxwell Air Force Base, and he correctly identifies that a strategy is a plan to achieve a continuing advantage in a competitive environment. It requires continuous work. It requires a unbiased and very deliberate analysis of one's own strengths, weaknesses, where opportunities lie, and where those threats exist that can take you out. It is a constant process. I have a company called the Pericles Strategy Group that I I operate, and I provide businesses with strategic counseling and trying to explain to them that strategy is a continuous process is something that seems foreign to them, but you just need to point to the number of businesses that come into operation and go out of business uh, just a few months later, and you can realize that there is a lot of bad strategy out there. So what strategy is not is a wish list. As many people confuse the fact that you want to do something with the way you want to get it done. Strategy is literally a bridge between the capabilities that you have, the way you can use them, to achieve the objectives that you want. In the military, we default to uh, what uh, Professor Like from the Army War College says, strategy is a way to connect the ends of policy with the ways you are allowed to use with the means you have at hand. Awesome. Well, thanks very much for that. So it's not a wish list. It's not a list of goals with some fluffy language uh, before and after that. And and the reason why I I asked you that question is, and and for our listeners, part of the reason why this program is called Real Space Strategy is because there's a lot of fake space strategy out there that uh, people have been dealing with and reading over the the years. And I thought that was a good part to, to start off with is to frame us on what is and what is not. So that was a nice connection of Dolman with a little Colin Gray there when you mentioned the, the, the bridge 
for those of you that didn't catch that, Colin S. Gray wrote a book called Strategy Bridge that is also a pretty good read for those of you who are interested in digging into this. The, the most recent strategy document that has come out from the Department of the Air Force since the Space Force is, is still um, one of the two services under that uh, Department of the Air Force is called the Comprehensive Strategy of the Space Force. This is a document that was directed by Congress in the previous National Defense Authorization Act. And as someone who has created and developed space policy and strategy at the Pentagon, and as you mentioned, teach and research on this topic, what are some of the good things that stand out with this document? Well, I'm going to get to that in just a moment. Uh, I first want to say that I am a professor and an employee of the United States government. I am an academic, uh, having retired from a 30-year active-duty Air Force career, but I'm going to invoke academic privilege here. The thoughts and opinions that I share are mine and mine alone. They do not necessarily represent those of Air University or of the Department of the Air Force or any part of the United States government, but they ought to. So what is good about this document is that this is a serious attempt to frame uh, a plan that can serve as guidance for downstream lower level planning, which is one of the things that strategy has to do. Uh, I like to say that uh, using a more Darwin referenced definition of strategy, strategy is a plan of orchestrating your capabilities in such a manner that you are introducing change in a competitor's environment that obligates your competitor to adapt in a manner that we prefer. That's what a strategy does in a competitive environment. We live in a condition of permanent competition. We're in competition with the environment, with other species, and inside our own species. And in fact, as homo sapiens, we compete so easily that we don't even recognize it. But when you went to work this morning, you competed for the best parking spot. When you went to the shopping mall this afternoon to buy groceries, perhaps, you uh, fought to get the best shopping cart. We homo sapiens have put ourselves on top of the food chain because we are so hyper-competitive. And when we are not competing, competing in our work environment, We've actually invented sports so that we can continue to compete. One need not even be on the team on the sports field. One just needs to buy a pair of uh, a hat and uh, maybe a shirt and go sit in the stands on the side of your favorite team and yell, roll tide. Oh, did I give that away? Oh, darn. (laughs) Well, I'm here in the beautiful Alabama and I have to be loyal to my, my local hometown team. So the other thing that's good about this, in addition to it being an attempt to codify and provide scoping and direction for downstream planning, uh, it also has several interesting elements in it, some of which I don't think rise to the the level of being strategic guidance, but more like goals. Um, In this this circumstance, I'd point you to uh, page two of the document, which is titled mm-hmm. uh, Congressional Report on Com- Comprehensive Strategy for the Space Force. It says that uh, the U.S. Space Force establishes three lines of effort. One, field combat-ready forces, so that the Space Force has the personnel, training, and equipment to prevail in a fight. Boy, I love that. that that's, that's a good one. But number two is weird. It says amplify the guardian spirit so that the Space Force attracts, develops, and inspires and empowers and retains individuals who thrive in the U.S. Space Force organization under guardian values. 
I don't know what the guardian spirit or the guardian values are. They spell them out elsewhere, but to me, that, that just that doesn't reach the level of strategic guidance on how to defeat an adversary. It just isn't right. Well, and, and I'll let, just add one more. I'll just add one more quick thing here. When it talks about combat ready forces, if if people who are listening look in any of the documents that have come out over the last couple of years whether it's U.S. Space Command or U.S. Space Force, combat-ready forces does not necessarily mean, in fact, it usually doesn't mean forces that are capable of having of conducting combat themselves. They are typically meaning combat support-ready in the sense of GPS or satellite communications or even ground-based EW, electromagnetic warfare. So when we're thinking this, remember to keep that in context uh, as well. So go ahead, as you were saying. You know, and I just want to point out the third thing. The third third uh, objective in these lines of operation is to partner to win, to strengthen relationships with the Joint Force allies and partners so that the Space Force can collaborate to build enduring advantages, deter aggression, and defeat adversaries. That sounds really good, but you know what? We have a sovereign responsibility to provide those types of capabilities for ourselves without having to lean on allies and partners. Uh, we can talk about some realistic limitations that we have that cause friction in our system that force us to do this partnering function. And most of the partnering function is driven by our domestic politics. Um, mm -hmm. Administrations change. And our ability to carry important space programs over between administrations oftentimes hinges on how many international partners we've brought into this program and how difficult will it be on a new administration to undo what has been done? Yeah, it's a it's a piece of the bureaucratic survival uh, planning is more so than it is a a strategic addressing the competition. So it's more domestic competition within the bureaucracy than it is competition with great power adversaries. Yeah, pretty much. What you're and, saying, uh, the the great military theorist of, from the 1800s, Karl von Clausewitz, who co-wrote that magnificent work called On War with his wife, Marie. Uh, we have all the evidence that the two of them were a joint brainchild that put that magnificent work together. Um, he would say that this was internal friction that prevents us from being as bold as we ought to be to take action. We are slightly, no, significantly afraid of our own shadow. Yeah, well, speaking of that, um, when when you look at this document, and obviously, you know, I've mentioned in public that there were some good things. Obviously, we want to have and maintain missile warning and tracking. We want to maintain, you know, space domain awareness. We want to be able to track what's going on up there. We want to do all these things. But even in the in a, a recent speech that Assistant Secretary of Defense for Space Policy Plum gave, I believe yesterday. Um, one of the things that he basically mentions is, like you said, they start down the right path, but then when they get to talking about, you know, defending, protecting and defending, um, they're not talking about protecting and defending what I call critical space infrastructure, which are the main areas of that we're, that we use and rely upon for our daily lives as citizens, but also our military forces are, are necessary, need rather, are necessary for successful operations, both in space and terrestrially. And yet they, they use this phrase, which is becoming more used. And I'm, I'm, this is connected to the U.S. Space Priorities Framework, which came out of the White House uh, about, I think, in 2021. But basically that we are there to protect the joint force from space-enabled attacks. So in other words, terrestrial actions that have space enablement. So 
GPS-enabled bombs, or in the sense of Russia GLONASS, or in the sense of China Beidou. Um, we're, we're trying to help prevent them from using space to enhance their conventional terrestrial forces. Nowhere are we protecting and defending, in language that I've seen recently, critical space infrastructure or strategic interests in space. Is that something that you've noticed? And is there anything in this document that you saw that I missed that addresses that? Yes, the Grissom Space Scholars, excuse me, the Grissom Space Seminar, which I direct here, uh, we have gone over this document and it is, to quote one of my students' response to this document, it's just shameful. It's just shameful that the Space Force is not allowed to step up and be the armed force that Congress commanded it to be. Um, I will go to uh, this past week. I gave a lecture to the assembled body of Air Command and Staff College to all 500 of our students, including nearly 70 different allied nation partners. And I read to them and showed right up on the screen with a, a copy of the letter from the Secretary of the Air Force, uh, Frank Kendall, um, and with highlighted these paragraphs, or these sentences rather in the paragraph. Mm -hmm. To the end, the Department of the Air Force is focusing on a resilient space architecture, meaning our space-based capabilities can be projected, degrade gracefully under attack and be reconstituted at a capable at a reasonable time if necessary. Degrade gracefully. Okay. Degrade gracefully. And what this means is we will accept whatever attrition the enemy imposes. Basically, hmm. we have adopted a World War 1 attrition-based strategy where we will try to run the enemy out of their counter space shots by putting up way too many satellites for them to shoot down. The problem mm. is, even with these newer, smaller, cheaper satellites, it is always cheaper to build a counter space weapon than it is a satellite. And our primary competitor, our pacekeeping competitor, uh, the Chinese, they have plenty of counter space weapons, as your prologue to this uh, uh, episode indicated. Mm -hmm. The idea that we're not going to push back, the idea that we're not going to maneuver out of the enemy's line of fire, that we're not going to suppress those enemy uh, counter space weapons mm -hmm. is literally when I showed this to the 500 airmen in the <laughs> audience, they let out a collective gasp. They couldn't believe it. The responses that we've had since then is, why would we ever allow space to support the warfighter if space is not going to support and sustain itself so that we have assurance that those capabilities will be there. Yeah. And I'll just mention that since you brought up the, 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 the uh, pacing threat, as they call it in the policy sphere of China. Um, one of the things that if people have looked and read at some of the things that I've written and other people have written, the Chinese themselves um, have published a paper um, that basically explains that this resilient architecture, the disaggregated, the tens and hundreds of satellites to to make it harder, as they say, confuse enemies targeting calculus with sheer numbers, is basically that they're, they're not looking at them as individual targets. They're looking at the collective constellation of tens or hundreds of satellites as a single system target. And with a concept that they're now calling system destruction, and as a result of system destruction, that they are using, which is why they built this multi-layered attack architecture, is to find ways to degrade 
and destroy, to use their words exactly from the Mandarin, kill the system from being effective. And um, the fact that people are, are willing to accept that and think that somehow that's a deterrent, um, since we're a deterrence organization, um, is very odd, given there's really no threat. The whole denial by deterrence idea um, is based upon a threat, and it's really not a threatening thing to the adversary um, to just make them Winchester a few missiles, but when they have other means, cyber, high-powered microwaves, co-orbital ASAS, things of that sort. Is that is that something that your students have, have brought up in discussion as well, or was that something that they're not aware of yet? No, they are quite aware of that. In fact, uh, they point out that we have uh, roughly 500,000 Chinese nationals as students inside the United States, virtually at all of our universities and colleges and research centers, significant portion of all the science, technology, engineering, mathematical degrees that we give out go to Chinese nationals who return to China. And a significant portion of them are already members of the People's Liberation Army. We have uh, some systemic problems that we are not solving. And there's, there's some numbers that I need to throw out so your audience can keep an appreciation for the scale of the importance of space, not just to the United States, but to the world. Mm-hmm. Presently on orbit, and I'm looking at celestrack.org, there are 9,259 satellites on orbit. Looking right at the night, that's as of today. Of those 9,259, 6,275 of them are U.S. But only 77 of those are operated by your United States Space Force. Only 77 satellites. Mm -hmm. But we've, we've got to do better with certain things. We've got to adopt best practices. We need to recruit better, more qualified, provide better training and education to the space cadre that operates them. Although your Space Force operates a, a, a 77 satellites on orbit, that Space Force is comprised of uh, roughly 8,000 uniformed personnel with roughly 62,000 contractors assisting in the daily operations in those squadrons. That is a tremendous number. By comparison, Starlink, operated by Elon Musk's company, Starlink, they started launching satellites in 2019. They now have 5,500 satellites on orbit, and they are comprised of exactly 50 employees. Mm -hmm. Yep, and I will will add also that each of these commercial companies, um, for years, even going back to 2019 when the Space Force was looked at at being established, that the commercial sector is very supportive of having a Space Force that will provide protection not just service providing, like, you know, as some people like to use that phrase. Um, I'll give an example from another operating domain, which is the maritime domain, um, kind of combined with the air. But as we've seen in the news recently, you got Iranian-backed proxies, the Houthis, firing long-range cruise missiles and UAVs at commercial ships. Um, Some of them U.S. ships, some of them Israeli ships. Um, people get very upset about that, and rightly so. The interesting thing uh, that the audience might want to know as we look at this document is the fact that, as General Thompson, as I mentioned earlier, that, that our, our now former vice chief of space operations, General Thompson, has said that we see attacks daily. And while they're low threshold and they're reversible in some cases, not all of them are, 
many of these are against commercial assets. If you look at the International Telecommunications Union, they have reports that come out, I think quarterly, but I know, I know that at least annually. And you see attacks that are commercial on commercial, uh, state on commercial, state on state, and, and all over the place. So this is not something that's, that this stuff happens every day, but yet you don't have the same type of, uh, of concern. And for some reason, we, we treat them as if we treat these attacks on our infrastructure and our commercial flagged uh, providers and even U.S. Space Force hardware as if it's just some sort of system anomaly that it's just no big deal. We don't, we don't treat it as, as, a, as a threat that it is. Um, and I'm curious why you think that, that this document um, avoids discussion of that. I know they say protect and defend, but again, they're, they're talking about protecting and defending the services that the terrestrial forces use as if the space force is not part of the joint force, that they're not a combat force provider, that they're essentially, as the U.S. priority framework says, enable and support. Well, the cynics in my classes, and I have to describe who my students are. My students are mid-grade <laughs> officers, typically in the rank of major, uh, coming from every different way and walk of career field in the Air Force. They take a look at this and they point out the primary problem is published by the Department of the Air Force not by a department of the Space Force. There is mm -hmm. no truly independent service. Uh, God bless General Chance Saltzman, Salty, uh, as the chief of space operations. He's doing a great job, but he's not free to take a position contrary to the Secretary of the Air Force. Some of my cynics have pointed out that this idea that we'll just build satellites and let the enemy take them out, and then we'll build even more satellites and to throw more skeet in front of the enemy's shotguns, uh, they are very concerned that this is basically a declaration that the Air Force will keep the aviation industry base alive and competitive by throwing these satellite contracts to those contractors that don't win the aircraft contracts. Mm -hmm. they're, they're concerned that this is just a means of keeping the aviation um, industrial base alive and healthy. And that is a major concern. If you're a secretary of the Air Force, you want a competitive industrial base so that uh, you can persist, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. However, too many times space is awarded as the booby prize to the company that did not win the aircraft contract. And uh, that's just a reality. The problem is space with, with the, the over 9,000 satellites on orbit, we now have more satellites aloft then we have aircraft in flight at any given time. Only right. about 8,200 aircraft are aloft at any one time, and we already have more than 1,000 satellites. Aircraft just take off and go from point A to point B and deliver something. These satellites are on orbit providing continuous data collection and routing 24-7, 365 days a year to all various users, not just in the U.S. government, but you take a look at GPS, the global positioning system, which... Everybody listening to you is, uses GPS in some way or fashion. Anytime you uh, 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 do a bank transaction, anytime you uh, use your mobile phone or enjoy high-speed internet, you're enjoying the time tagging that GPS mm -hmm. does in order to provide ones and zeros. And in fact, if the electricity is on where you are and the air conditioning is working and the lights are on, you can thank the global positioning system. Our population has been growing, but we've been shutting down power generation stations because we've been 
augmenting the existing power generation stations with a GPS timing source to, to uh, not only multiply, but magnify, maximize, and optimize the power generation and distribution. Just those 24 satellites in that nominal GPS constellation transforms the world. An estimate was out there a few years ago that there has been a, between 17 and 23% increase in the efficiency of transportation across all medium, uh, uh, truck, rail, aircraft, because vehicles can now travel from point A to point B directly mm-hmm. without getting lost. And in, in in controllable navigation routes to maximize the flow of traffic along those routes. GPS has an annual valuation to the U.S. economy of over $1 billion of tax revenue to the U.S. government every day, a billion dollars a day, over $365 billion. Your Space Force is a money-generating proposition, not because we charge the customers who use it, but because of what the customers themselves are able to do that was impossible before it in the down, downstream second and third order effects. Well, if I could bring up as our last question, since we're running short on time, is, is you mentioned General Saltzman. And one of the things he wrote recently in one of his C notes as he sends out these, these CSO notes to the force, um, he asked a question, you know, what are we missing in our thought processes with respect to great power competition? And I think the big missing part is that addressing the arms race that the United States is in with space. I mean, the Chinese are building up rapidly. This is publicly notif- um, has been publicly articulated by the, the uh, Director of National Intelligence and other documents that are publicly released to Congress. And just because we don't, we're not playing in that realm, or at least not playing seriously, in my view, in that realm, doesn't mean that we're not in the race. Um, what do you think the Space Force should be doing to address this gap in space deterrence and warfighting capabilities while the adversaries continue to advance? It's, again, last question. Chris, I think this is just a, actually a brilliant question. I'm glad that you raised this. We need to wake up. We are in the second Cold War, and we're on the risk of it turning hot, specifically because we do not have the type of space armaments to deter attacks against these satellites. The uh, Chinese have postulated, and we read this in Unrestricted Warfare and other other documents that they've published, uh, they believe that America walked out of Desert Storm learning the wrong lessons. Your United States Air Force believed, walking out of Desert Storm, that stealthy aircraft and precision-guided munitions were the secret to warfare. The Chinese disagreed. They recognized that information is the key to American warfare. Precision engagement, stealth engagement, requires information uh, collected from all various sources and fused together, and nobody in the, at the time of 1991 when we fought that could do that better than the United States. Well, the Chinese subsequently developed their st- second strategic support division, which is their space force, which combines space with cyber. Their job, should we get into a conflict, is to de-informationize the American way of warfare in a period of between 48 and 72 hours as a precursor before anything goes kinetic. In other words, they will turn us deaf, dumb, and blind. And once they have installed that confusion in our domestic homeland, let alone our forward operating bases, then they will begin their kinetic attacks. Um, What we really desperately need to do is put together 
a series of defensive and offensive space-based weapons, just as the Chinese and increasingly the Russians have done and are continuing to do. We must have the ability to employ what is called the modern system. We must develop new methods of maneuverability for our satellites so they can maneuver out of the enemy's line of fire and so they can return fire against those systems shooting at them. We may need to have a bodyguard satellites or uh, escort satellites, as they've been called, in order to convoy our strings of satellites through their celestial lines of communications so that we can persist faced with this threat. People need to take this seriously. If we get into a major war with China or Russia, the battle for space will be as desperate for the United States as the Battle of Britain was for the United Kingdom. It's time for us to get serious about this. Well, I agree with that, and I, I appreciate that sentiment as well. Um, with that, I want to thank you for attending with us. Thanks for coming on, Coyote, as always. Good to have your perspectives, and uh, hopefully looking forward to seeing an article from you in Global uh, Security Review sometime soon. That'd be great. Awesome. Well, thanks, everyone, for joining. This concludes this episode, and we look forward to seeing you all next time. Thank you for listening to NIDS Knowledge Real Space Strategy. The Real Space Strategy Edition is produced under NIDS Podcasting Network, a division of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. NIDS is a 501c3 organization dependent on donations to provide this podcast and bring about awareness of the peacekeeping value of U.S. strength and our national deterrence. You can catch all of our podcasts or provide feedback at thinkdeterrence.com. I want to thank our producer, Kimberly Sherrington, our sponsors, and all the fantastic members of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies for making this podcast possible. Stay tuned next week for another exciting and informative NIDS knowledge.